0: y'all need to come to this lesson because we're going to talk about the Nephilim. And everybody got excited because they thought I was going to talk about the Nephilim and the genetic wickedness and those giants. I said, no. This is a group who is really not mentioned a whole lot in the Bible, but yet they're very significant. So you and I are going to talk about the Nephilim and their name means given ones. This is a... I hope you'll stay with me. You're going to have to stay engaged in the lesson to get the whole thing, uh, the truths that are in this lesson. You and I are going to start with the children of Israel. If you've been with me many years, you know I use the children of Israel a lot because Paul tells us we are to look back at them and we learn a lot from them and how he dealt with them. So you and I have been in captivity over in Babylon for how long? 70 years and we know 70 years was when he was going to let us start going back to Jerusalem. So we are at the time now we've been over here and Zerubbabel is going to take group 1 back to Jerusalem. Their purpose is to build the physical temple. That's their purpose is to get that physical temple built. And in Ezra 2.1, it says, These are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon. And now this group is going to get to go back to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. If you skip down to verse 43, who is listed in this group? The Nethinim. They are the children of Ziha, the children of Heshupah, the children of Tabaoth. And there are 392 of them that volunteer to go back to Jerusalem and help build the temple. Okay, don't forget that. It's important. Now we go to Ezra 8, verse 1. Now it is time for group 2, and their leader is Ezra. It is 80 years since group 1. So a lot of time has passed. So group 2 is getting ready to go. And it says, These are the family heads, those registered with them, who came up with Ezra from Babylon during the reign of King Artaxerxes. In the next verse, in Ezra 8.20. Also, who's in that group? The Moranethonim's, ne- more right. <clears throat> Key phrase here that you need to pay attention to David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites. Two hundred and twenty of them. And they are all expressed by name. Important passage. So we have a total of like five hundred and ninety-two or so that have gone over to Jerusalem. And David had appointed them to be appointed for the service of the Levites. Their group two... And their purpose, we going to go take care of the spiritual needs of the people and restore proper worship. We got our temple. Eighty years later, now we're going to get the people in shape. That's what they're going to do. Now, we see God's order for his servants in the temple, in the tabernacle. In Numbers 3, 9, the high priest are the sons of whom? Aaron so we know he said and then he says you are going to give the Levites to Aaron that's something that we need to keep in mind and then in numbers 3 12 he said the Levites are mine but now look at Ezra 8 20 the Nethinim that David appointed and the Nethinim are going to serve who the Levites these Nethinim are temple servants To the Levites but here's the hierarchy Aaron the high priest then the Levites then the Nethanim all right everybody have that yeah hold on to it now most scholars believe that a group that was in the land called the Gibeonites are later called the Nethanim yes we're going to go there because I did a lot of reading and research and I agree with these scholars, and I think you will agree with me by the time we get to the end of the lesson. I believe the Gibeonites later became were named the Nethanim because they were given, and David gave them to the service of the Levites. And most scholars believe they were later called the Nethanim, the given ones. When David formally gave them during his reign, he said, I'm giving all of you Nethanim to the Levites, and you're going to be temple servants. That's also from Ezra 8. And so David, the princess, had appointed for the service of the Levites 220 Nethanims, and they all had their name expressed individually. They're important people, and it's an important group that I had not really studied and kind of overlooked. So here's the Nethanim. Their name means one given, and we get our name Nathan from that. And it says in 1 Chronicles 9-2, here's another passage to pay close attention to. The first inhabitants that dwelt in their possessions in their cities were the Israelites, then the priests, the Levites, and who? The Nethanim. And then in Nehemiah 11.21, the Nethanims get to dwell in Ophel. And you're thinking, is that good? Absolutely, we're going to look at a map. And they had two people over them, Ziha and Gispah. So if you'll look at the upper right corner first, that's the map I want you to look at first in the upper right corner. Do you see the old city of Jerusalem? It's got little white dots around it. Now, the blue uh, oval there is the Ophel. So it's north of the city of David. It's like you're going to ascend towards the temple, and the temple is in red. So do you see the old city of David? You have the Ophel, which is a a portion that is going to be raised and will ascend to the temple in red. And the Nethanim get to dwell in the blue circle. Look where they're going to be. Okay, now look at the map, the big map. If you look at the big map, the Ophel is the high place, and that's where you ascend to the south side of the temple. Now, if you look at my boxes here, do you see the red box, red rectangle? That's the temple mount on that map. The blue one right below it, that's the Ophel. And if I'm a Nephilim, I get to dwell there right close to the temple. And look what else. What's right below them in the black box? The water gate. Oh. And then go a little bit further down in the green box, there's the Gihon Spring. Is this a place of privilege to live? It says they're going to dwell there. Okay. Now, you and I, in order to know how they got there, we're going to go back to their past and see how this happened. So we're going to go back to the Gibeonite deception and we have to go to Joshua chapter 9. It came to pass, remember we said every word is important, right? And we stop and we, we think and we investigate. When all, how many? All the kings that are beyond the Jordan, oh, they're in the hill country, the lowland, they're on the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, Now, listen to these groups. If you've been with me for many years, you know these groups. We have the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Those are those groups God said you go in and you utterly destroy them. You get rid of them. They heard about it. What do you think they've heard about? They've heard about Jericho. They've heard about Ai. Those are the first two places that they that God gave them the victory. And so these kings who have not liked each other, but now they have a common goal. They're going to come together and they have one purpose. We are going to fight Joshua and fight the, that nation of Israel. So they heard about it. And these kings before, they hadn't... They hadn't even thought about being hostile towards Israel till now. But they're going to band together, and they have an offensive attack because that God of Israel, he has shown himself strong on behalf of his people. We know they already took Jericho, and they took Ai on the second attempt. So they put aside their differences. You know, these people didn't get along. But they're going to get along now because they have a common purpose. They have a common hatred for the enemy. They're going to unite, and their goal, we've got to destroy the people of God. That is their goal. So all the kings of Canaan put aside their differences, and they're going to go to battle and fight. They will not surrender at all to Israel, and they will never ask Israel for mercy. That's their goal. They're just going to fight and hope that they win. Now, this is I like to teach this way when I'm doing like a story, I'll say. I like to break it into small segments, and we're going to have scene one, scene two, scene three, because I like to do that, I understand it better, and I can remember it better. So here's our play, although we know it's real. This is about the deception of the Gibeonites, and what is their goal? We want to secure a place in Israelite society. We want to just kind of meld into their society. Why? Because if I don't, I'm going to be destroyed. So they are fearful. They know what's happened. And when they get in fear, they're going to deceive and get a plan going that's full of deception. So that's what we're going to see in scene 1, verses 3 through 6. Now, if you look at my map, once again, you see the Jordan River in kind of the light bluish green. Okay, now you see Gilgal. Okay, this is where they camped when they crossed the Jordan River. And remember, they took the stones and they made the memorial at Gilgal. Jericho was just right over there from the camp. And so they have Jericho, Ai, and now they're going to Gibeon. And so if you're a Gibeonite and you know they've already done Jericho and Ai, what are you thinking? What's next? We are. And so they begin to shake in their boots. And they are very fearful. Now, this is really amazing because if you turn the page to chapter 10 and go to verse 2, it says, Gibeon was a great city and they were greater than Ai. And all of the men were mighty. So where are they? Where are they? Oh, they're planning deceit because they are, they're not going to fight. But it says all of the men were mighty. I thought that was interesting. So in verse 3, it says, The inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai. And the, the uh, message began to go throughout the camp of Gibeon. Those Israelites, they slaughtered every last man, the women, the children. They are utterly without mercy. And if we go in and oppose them, what's going to happen to us? Sure defeat. We will be destroyed, and none of us will be left. So, verse 4, they make a plan. Deception, because we've got to save ourselves. See, that, that's their whole plot. We have to save ourselves. So they work craftily. This sounds like the serpent. They work craftily, slyly, and they're going to pretend to be an ambassador. So they took old sacks on their donkeys. Now this is very thorough in their deceit. Even conforming to the peculiar ways of Israel, Israel did not use horses. The others did. But what do they do? They go drag a donkey in here because that's what Israel uses. So there's even more of the deceit. They took old wineskins that were torn and mended. They had old and patched sandals on their feet and old garments on themselves. All of their bread, their provision was dry and moldy. See, they're they're trying to think of every little minute detail. Now they're going to go to Joshua. Their plans, they've got it in in place they know what they're doing, and now they're going to go show up to Joshua, and you see this is going to be full of deceit and lies. They go to the camp at Gilgal. Now, why did the, why did the Holy Spirit tell them to write that? What's at Gilgal? Gilgal is the place where they came out of the Jordan River They took the stones out and they made the memorial to say God is the very reason we have this inheritance. They were circumcised there. They consecrated themselves and they had Passover. And whenever Joshua was in battle, you could always find him. He was there in Gilgal before, during, and after the battle. That was the place of consecration where they sought the Lord God. And that's where they go find Joshua. The deceit is going to take right Here at Gilgal. And they said to him and to the men of Israel. We have come from a far country. Therefore we want a what? We want a covenant. Those two words are important. Far country and we want a covenant. Now for you and I to understand this. We have to go back to Genesis 9 and 10. And this is where the curse is put on the son of Ham. You remember after they came out of the ark and Ham had despicable acts with his father? And a curse was put on his line. And it was his son Canaan, therefore all the Canaanites, remember? Okay, so the curse is put on Canaan and it's now coming to fruition because they've already killed the ones at Jericho and Ai is God's plan for them to kill all of the Canaanites that live in the promised land of Canaan. Yes, they're supposed to kill all of them because of the curse on them. So if you look at the map here, we have Jericho in the yellow dot, Gilgal is blue, Ai is green, Gibeon, where they're going, is in the red. We're only five and a half miles northwest of Jerusalem. And it is one of the Hivite cities. Now, I'll show that in just a minute. And they are under the threat of God's judgment. Now, multiple passages confirm in the Bible for us Genesis 9's judgment on all the people that are going to live in Canaan. Is this my inheritance if I'm a nation of Israel? Yes. He gave them specific boundaries and said, This is your inheritance. It belongs to you. You're going to go kill all the people that live in there because they're enemies. God had given them 400 years to repent and turn to him. All those Canaanites and the cup of iniquity became full and he said, you're going to go in and destroy them now. They've had time and they would not turn to me. So at least seven times in Exodus and Deuteronomy, Moses is going to list these Canaanite cities that are under the threat of God's judgment. The list of people that he does in Exodus and Deuteronomy same list of people in Joshua 9 1 so you can see that even though they lived hundreds of years apart so here's a key point for you and me why do they go to these great lengths these Gibeonites they deceive Israel because the judgment threatened by Yahweh the God of Israel it's a credible threat that has been stated several times throughout the old testament by Moses and others and it's confirmed by the word of God and so they they've seen what God does for the nation of Israel so they know this is a real threat in Exodus 23 he says when my angel goes before you and he's going to bring you to the Amorites and the Hittites the Perizzites Canaanites Hivites and Jebusites and I blot them out." Who does it? God does, but we are engaged in the battle. You shall not bow down to their gods or serve them, nor do as they do, but you're going to utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. Now, in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6, when they're getting ready to go into the Promised Land, he said, there are seven cruel and wicked nations, and I intent, God intended for all of the nations of the promised land to be destroyed. Every inhabitant, every man, woman, and child is to be destroyed. The last words of Moses in Deuteronomy 7, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and he clears away many nations before you, Here's our list again. Hittites, Gergeshites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. These are seven nations that are more numerous than you and they're mightier than you. Now, listen to verse 2. This is key. When the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, you're going to smite them and utterly destroy them. And here's your instructions. No covenant no mercy. Pretty clear, right, if I'm a member of the nation of Israel. No covenant, no mercy. Now, but then we go to Deuteronomy 20, and we have to put a little bit of a wrench in the plan because God had different rules if the city was within the boundaries of the promised land or if it was outside over there. Okay? Let's look at the difference in the rules. He says, this is for the ones that live outside of the promised land. Okay. When you approach a city to fight against it, you can offer it terms of peace. And what does he say? If it agrees, yeah, we'll make peace with you. And they open up to you, all the people who are found in it, they're going to become your forced labor, and they're going to serve you. Okay? Thus shalt thou do to all the cities that are far off from you, and they cannot be any of the cities of the nations inside of the promised land. God says, I'll allow for peace with a nation outside the land, because this land I'm giving you is your inheritance. Y'all following? Okay. And what do they become? If you live out there and you agree to peace... I can make a covenant with you, but you're going to become my forced labor and serve me. Okay? They had to agree to that. Now, if you're in the cities of the people that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, in other words, they are in our land, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. That's pretty clear. If it's breathing, you kill it and he goes on to say you completely destroy them and he's going to list again Hittite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite we need to make a song as the Lord your God has commanded you otherwise they're going to teach you to follow the detestable things they do in worshiping those pagan gods and you will begin to sin against the Lord your God this is for their own good So, different rules. Don't forget the rules. If they're far from Israel, outside our boundary, we can seek peace with them, and we spare them from the sword. But you will become our servant, forced labor, and you will serve the nation of Israel. Okay? So that's God's rule. But those near to Israel whose practices of idolatry will lead God's people astray destroy them pretty clear so what do you think these Gibeonites know do you think they know the exception to the rule oh yeah I don't know exactly how but they seem to know it their words and actions tell me they know about living outside the promised land I can get spared. They won't kill me. And if I have to become their servant, so be it. So they have an opportunity. They have knowledge of this. And when you have knowledge, they're going to use it to achieve their protection so that they can be saved from the sword and saved from utter destruction. Their only hope, I've got to convince the Israelites that I live outside the promised land. And therefore, you can make peace with me, and we'll have a treaty and I'll become your servant. Yeah, so to make this fictional story appear authentic, this is we got together all of our provisions. We've got our worn out sacks or donkeys or old wineskins or cracked and mended. They wore old patched sandals on their feet, threadbare clothing on their bodies. Their entire provision of bread was dry and crumbly. Everything about their appearance, their clothes, all that moldy food gave the appearance they had been traveling a long time. They just arrived. So scene one, what's happened so far, fear that they're going to be destroyed gives birth to deception and they start making the plan. So let's go to scene 2, verses 7 to 13, and we're now going to put the deception, our plan, into action. Then it says, (laughs) all of a sudden in verse 7, it says, guess what? The men of Israel said to who? I thought we were talking to the Gibeonites. We're going to find out they are really Hivites. Okay, we're going to explain this. And the word Hivite means serpent. I thought I was talking to a Gibeonite, and now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, tell him it's a Hivite. Okay, why do I need to know this? The Gibeonites are composed of four cities from among the whole Hivites. Okay, let's put it in, in our language here. You and I are all Oklahomans, right? So we live in Oklahoma, but Oklahoma is made up of people that live in Tulsa and Copan and Bartlesville and Oklahoma City and Woodward and all kinds of places, right? We are all Okies, though, right? Okay, but we have many cities that make up Okies. That's what this is. There were four or five cities that made up the Hivites. Are the Hivites in that list to destroy? Yes, so we're learning now they are Hivites and the Holy Spirit has revealed that in verse 7. These people are really a Hivite. Now we've got to go back to Genesis 34 and find out why is deceit being used right now. If I go back to Genesis 34, I'm going back again to the children of Israel with some Hivites. And we have Jacob, And his 12 sons, and he has one old gal named Dinah. And Dinah is going to suffer being raped by a Hivite named Shechem. And so Shechem decides he wants his dad to go tell them that he wants their girl. And so they're gonna use some deceit during all of this. The sons of Jacob, though, answered Shechem and his father, a Hivite, deceitfully. So, the nation of Israel is deceiving the Hivite, and now in the chapter you and I are in, the Hivite is going to deceive the nation of Israel. I think there's a phrase called turnabout's fair play. I think that's what we're seeing here. Now, by using deceit, they succeed, and these two boys of Jacob's, they deceive them, and they go in, and they kill the Hivite men in the cities and spoiled their city. So there was rape and rage and violence and death and a lot of it done through deception. So that's been brewing for years. Now, the descendants of those who had wickedly deceived the Hivites, they're now going to come along and they're going to deceive the nation of Israel. Okay, the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you dwell among us How can we make a covenant with you? If you live among us, no covenant, no mercy. Right? That's the rule, God's rule. But they said to Joshua, listen to what they say first. We're your servants. See, they know. They know what this rule is. And we will become your forced labor and serve you. And Joshua said, who are you? Where do you come from? They said to him, Oh, we came from a very far country. Your servants have come. See, they know the result of all this, and they're using all this language. Because of the name of the Lord your God, we heard about his fame, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to those two kings of the Amorites. Do you all remember the two giant kings that were on the other side of the Jordan? There was... uh, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. And they already had victory over them, and they were the ones that had like, what, the 12 or 13-foot bed? So these were some giant kings that were over here. We heard about it and what y'all did to them. Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, and they said, here's what you need to do. Take provisions with you for the journey and go meet them and say, we are your servants therefore make a covenant with us they know what to say don't they now this bread of ours that we took hot on the day that we departed to come to you look it's all dry and moldy the wine skins that we filled were new and look they're torn our garments and our sandals have become uh, old because of this very long journey deceit flattery cheating They heard of the great work your God did in delivering you from Egypt and how he gave you victory over the two kings of the Amorites. Same words that were spoken by Rahab the harlot in Joshua 2, but yet she put her faith in God and hid the servants. Remember? These are using deceit. Their purpose, I've got to ingratiate myself with Joshua as though they desired to come under Jehovah's protection. So they appeared to be deeply impressed by the wonders that God had wrought and therefore we want to be your friends. For this purpose they undertook a very fatiguing journey which evidenced their willingness we will be tributary to you. When you're tributary to a nation you're willing to pay tribute and usually it was a financial thing also. Now their story's been carefully thought out. Because I want you to notice what they include and what they leave out. They made reference to their knowledge of what Jehovah had done in Egypt and to the kings of the Amorites. No mention. My mouth's closed. No mention of that supernatural crossing of the Jordan. Nor of the victory at Jericho and Ai. Why? Why? because if I really came from a far country, I wouldn't have heard about that yet. Wow, they had this well-planned, so they don't mention that. How far a hypocrite will go in order to gain the friendship of God's people? Okay, scene one. We're afraid we're gonna get destroyed, so we are gonna make a deceptive plan. Scene two, we put it into action, and now, scene three, I'm going to tell you why the enemy succeeded. One verse. The men of Israel, the men, took some of the provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. They, check, they said, look at all this evidence we have. But they didn't seek God on it. But we have all this evidence. So they relied on their own judgment about the evidence that they were shown. They were initially skeptical of the Gibeonites. It was carelessness, but they did not choose to follow up on it, and they had all kinds of red flag signals, but they ignored it and shoved it. The problem, they lowered their defenses, and they're looking only at the outward appearance like evidence of truth. I said, okay. Because the Israelites, judged by appearance, everything looked legitimate to them. Now, ladies, this is doubly inexcusable. Not only was that, you just shouldn't even excuse it because they're only going by outward appearance. They were deceived at the camp at Gilgal. What's at Gilgal? The Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God himself is there. The tabernacle of the priesthood. All they had to do was inquire. And they would have known the truth. The place where the mind of the Lord God could be obtained if they would just seek him. And the way that he directed. They knew his will over all. We're supposed to drive those people out of the land. But Israel's leaders failed to check in with God when the decision came before them. They said, oh, we see this, it's okay. That failure cost them dearly, and the lingering effects of this failure are going to be seen in subsequent generations. So, I don't mean to be repetitive, I'm just trying to keep everything in your mind about what's going on. I was afraid, so I've got to have a plan that's going to include deceit and lies. I've got to put the plan into action, and that's what they did. The enemy succeeded, because they only looked at the outward appearance of what evidence they were given, and they didn't seek God. The success of the deception. Joshua, now we've got Joshua back in the scene. Joshua made made peace with them, and he made a covenant to let them live. Joshua, who is always a type of Jesus Christ, his name means God is salvation, he showed him mercy. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them that they would be spared. Now, God allowed for peace with other nations outside the land, right? We know that. Joshua knows if they are from the outside of the land, what does Joshua have to do? Offer them peace and a covenant. He has to according to God's word. Joshua 9, 16, next verse. Three days later... They make that treaty, and he has spared them. The Israelites heard, they are our neighbors, and they live right here by us. They dwell among us. So the Israelites, I want you to keep noticing who's doing what, and I'll give you a chart in a minute. The Israelites set out, and on the third day they came to the cities, and these are the cities that are all Hivite cities. There's four of them. The Israelites didn't attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, we won't, you won't be attacked to the Lord God of Israel. The whole assembly, though, the congregation, is grumbling against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we're going to do. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath that we swore to them. Okay, ladies, your brain in gear? The light bulb's going to come on. Let them live, but they're going to be the woodcutters and they're going to be the water carriers. the whole nation of Israel and the promise was kept to them they're going to become servants and their job is going to be chop all the wood and haul all the water I gave you a chart because I thought this was interesting it's the men of Israel just the men that go out and question the Gibeonites they're the ones that examine the bread and they're the ones that fail to consult God it's the sons of Israel that go find the hidden cities and refuse to attack them then the congregation leaders are the ones that swore the oath to the Gibeonites. They're the ones that explain their nonviolence to the congregation, and they're the ones that pronounce a sentence of life on the Gibeonites, and us, the congregation, are murmuring against the leaders. That's what you look in all that chapter. Then Joshua. Now we got Joshua back. He summons the Gibeonites, and he said, Why did you deceive us by saying... We live a long way from you. You actually live right here by us. You are. This is Joshua, who's a type of Christ. You are now under a curse. You will never cease to serve. You will never cease to serve as a woodcutter and a water carrier. For who? The house of my God. They're going to be chopping the wood. And they're going to be carrying all the water for all the temple sacrifices. The instructions in Deuteronomy 29 for foreigners that are brought in as servants to Israel. He says, you stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God. Your captains of your tribes, your elders, your officers with all the men of Israel. Your little ones, your wives, your foreigner. Stop. Foreigner. That should ring a bell. The foreigner who is in the midst of your camp. If they're going to serve the Levites, those were are always in the midst of the camp. The foreigners who is in the midst of your camp, the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. Now, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath, which the Lord thy God makes with thee this day. These were Moses' instructions about the foreigner coming into your camp. In the context of Moses' covenant renewal with Israel, did he assign a place for the sojourners? So they're not, they're not part of the nation of Israel. He gave them a place to chop wood and haul water. Moses did. So when Joshua tells the Gibeonites, you're going to chop wood and you're going to haul water. He is fulfilling the word of Moses. He had a covenant relationship between Israel and the Gibeonites. You're becoming our servants. You're going to be temple servants. You're going to chop the wood and haul the water. Everybody seeing that? Everybody. Yes, you need to see this because it's, it's critical to the lesson here. And he said, let them live but they're going to be the hewers of wood and the drawers of water for all the congregation as the princes had promised them. Now, the Gibeonites answer Joshua in verse 24. Because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land, to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore... We were afraid of our lives because of you, and that's why we did this. The Gibeonites acted because of what they knew. They knew it. I don't know how they knew it. I haven't discovered that yet, but they knew it. God had commanded Israel to destroy all the inhabitants of the land, and because they knew that, fear was generated in them. So my knowledge led to fear. I thought of you and me think of sinners who know what their end is if they don't trust in God and they're not born again that puts fear in some people and will cause them to do you know whatever is necessary they think to save themselves and then they'll learn about Jesus Christ and so forth but I thought people know that their end is destruction they should knowledge and fear are powerful motivators. Their knowledge was power in that it motivated them to action, to do something to prevent or avoid inevitable destruction. None of us want to be destined to destruction because destruction for you and me would mean an eternity in the lake of fire. None of us want that. They knew Was coming, but that knowledge also generated fear. And what did they say to Joshua? Remember, he's always a type of Jesus Christ. And now, behold, we are in thine hand. As it seems good and right unto thee to do to us, do it. They throw themselves on Israel's mercy. Now they're talking to Joshua, type of Christ. They acknowledge, Israel, you are the superior power with the authority to grant justice and mercy. This is an act of unconditional surrender. They've got complete dependence on Joshua's grace and his truthfulness. And they're throwing themselves, as you might say, on the mercy of the court. In Joshua nine twenty-six, So Joshua... So did he unto them, and he delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel. Because the Israelites, remember, wanted to kill him, And Joshua saved them out of the hands of the Israelites. His name is Salvation. And he saved the Gibeonites from the people. And Joshua said, I'm going to make you a hewer of wood. I want you all to keep this in your mind. I know I'm repeating for a reason. Drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord. Can you see that we're talking about the tabernacle and the temple? In the place which he should choose. Joshua who delivered them actually made them living sacrifices. Isn't that what we are supposed to become? Unconditional surrender and be a living sacrifice however he chooses to use us. In his service and in his work. So Ken Matthew says, God and his voice, do you notice, not in that whole chapter, you don't see any, thus says the Lord, God says this. No, none of it. It's not present. Joshua, who's a type of Christ, serves as the faithful mediator. He is the savior of Gibeon. And Joshua's name means God is salvation or deliverance. When standing before the people of Israel who would seek to accuse the Gibeonites, the God-fearers spoke to Joshua even when they're addressed by the congregation. So the congregation's after them, talking to them, and they don't respond to them. They turn to Joshua, to Jesus Christ. So... Let's look at the rest of the story now. Let's follow the Gibeonites from that point. Letter A. Later, King Saul broke the treaty that Joshua had signed, and he attacked and killed some Gibeonites. Nothing happens for a while. King David comes along, and for three years there's a famine, and it doesn't let up, and David gets real concerned. And so he asks God, why are we having this famine? What happened? And in 2 Samuel 21, God answers him, You have a famine in the days of David, three years. And then year after year, David asked the Lord, and the Lord said, It's because of Saul, his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Now, to appease the, Gi- the Gibeonites and put an end to the famine, then they took seven descendants of Saul and killed him, and put him to death. Now, letter B, Gibeon is going to become an important high place in Israel, and Solomon, King Solomon's going to be there and offer sacrifices, and the tabernacle is sitting there at this time. God meets Solomon there when he's getting ready to be king, and God offered Solomon the chance for anything he desired. And we all know he asked for wisdom. Perhaps he was aware of Israel's failure to consult God with respect to the Gibeonites. And he's very aware of his newfound position of royal leadership. He's at Gibeon. Solomon asked for wisdom. Because there hadn't been much wisdom in Saul killing the Gibeonites. So, letter C. There are Gibeonites that are identified as servants in David's army and in his, at God's house. In 1 Chronicles, we see Ishmael of Gibeon became a mighty man for David. In Nehemiah 3:7, we see Melatiah, a Gibeonite. Here's a Gibeonite rebuilding the wall. Now, if you look at the map here, you can see that Gibeon has a high place and the tabernacle actually was there at the uh, high place of Gibeon during the early days of David and Solomon. That's where they had the tabernacle. Now, Gibeon in 1 Chronicles tells us they became a priestly city. Quite an honor. Nehemiah 7 lists all those who came from Babylon with Zerubbabel and they're the Nethanim's the children of Solomon's servants, 392 of them. And then in Ezra 8:20 of the Nethanims that David appointed for the service of who? The Levites. And there's 220 more that come. So I'm going to go back to Genesis 34 now. Y'all know the story pretty well, and we're going to dig in a little bit more to the deception. In Genesis 34... the last time Israel and the Hivites met before Joshua 9. all right? so we're going to go back to Shechem and the rape. Now, we're going to see over here with uh, the Hivites a covenant was made, they used deception, and a curse was turned into a blessing. So we're going to go back to that event. In Genesis 34, which I've already referenced a little bit, Shechem, the son of Hamar, rapes Dinah who's the daughter of Jacob so you see we have a Hivite and the the nation of Israel the son of Jacob the daughter of Jacob and Shechem goes to his dad and he says I want Dinah for my wife and Hamar his dad a Hivite tries to establish a covenant with Jacob and he wants a covenant between the Hivites and Jacob now Jacob's family this is the uh, covenant they're offered your family will come just join our family and you're going to live in the Hivite land and the Israel will join the Hivites I'm sure that did not go over too well with Jacob so two sons of Jacob we have Levi and Simeon they deceive the Hivites and they go tell the men of Shechem you just need to circumcise yourself because that's the visible sign of our covenant right That's what all the men of Israel. If we're going to come together, then all of you have to be circumcised. And then we'll enter into a covenant with you. Do you see lies and deceit coming? Yes. Yes. Now, on the third day, when the men are still healing, these two boys, Levi and Simeon, go and they kill all of the men. All of them. Now, we didn't make a covenant, did we? No covenant was made. Now, the connection most significant for making sense of Joshua 9, when we get over here, is the one related to Levi and Simeon. They were the ones that deceived the Hivites way back here. Are y'all following our thread? Now, after their violence towards Shechem, God said, you're going to be scattered throughout the land. That was their punishment for what they did. Go to Genesis 49. Where are we in Genesis 49? Jacob is about to die. And he's got all of the boys around his bed. And he's going to do prophetic stuff over them. And in verse 5 through 7, he's talking about the two boys, Simeon and Levi. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they went and lamed the oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. Their wrath, it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. That's dad's dying words to those two boys. Curse. They lost their inheritance, their portion in the land. Yet in time, God's going to take that curse and make it a blessing. Because now God's going to locate the tribe of Levi. Y'all are going to be the priest at the tabernacle. Something similar occurs with the people of Gibeon. Because of their deceit, Jacob put a curse on them, did he not? You're going to be the woodcutters, you're going to be the servants, etc. But like the Levites, they get to become servants in God's house. Joshua nine You're now under a curse. You will never cease to be a woodcutter and a water carrier for the house of my God. This is a peculiar curse. Because what is it actually going to do to these people? You're going to be near, nearer and nearer to the place of God's dwelling, the location of the greatest blessing in all of Israel. Listen to the message here. We're going to see that God's mercy is always more. Instead of seeing how the lives of Gibeon are met with swift punishment, we're going to find God's mercy overshadows all the wrongdoing, all of it. The people of Gibeon were not destroyed. They were given a place of service in God's tabernacle. That is a strong indication of God's mercy because they were marked for destruction, just like you and I were. God's mercy. Wow. So the Gibeonites, who I think are the Nethanim serving at the altar of Yahweh. That was the curse that he told them. So God is going to take this curse and turn it into a blessing to keep the Gibeonites' idolatry. Remember, they are pagan. They're Hivites. To keep it from defiling the true faith of Israel, their work's going to be carried out at the tabernacle. They're going to be exposed day after day after day to the true worship of the one true God because he's giving them a place of service in God's tabernacle, in God's dwelling place. Granted, their position is at the lowest level. We've got to chop the wood and haul the water from the Gihon spring, and we take it through the water gate. The wood and water are essential. What would they do for the sacrifices if you didn't have the wood and the water? They wouldn't be possible. So this is something essential for the worship of God in the tabernacle and the temple. They participated in the sacrificial worship of the God of Israel by serving at his altar. They're naturally going to acquire the knowledge of the true God. They will. Now, they were made to dwell in the courts of the Lord's house, the Ophel, that's in the just in the courts there, with near access to him in the service of the sanctuary. I'm reminding you again on our map, The red box in the middle, the Temple Mount, where they dwelt, is right below it in the blue box. They're right adjacent to the water gate, and the water gate's adjacent to the Gihon Spring. God's mercy on this group. The psalmist says, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I'd rather be a da- doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Listen to the next verse. Because the Lord God, he's a sun and a shield. He gives grace <laughs> and he gives glory. And no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Surely they esteemed their lot of blessing, even though it was hard work. It was toilsome. It humbled them. The Nethinim, Ezra 8:20, 20. Also of the Nethinim that David appointed for the service of the Levites. These are the people that are getting the wood and the water for the Levites to be able to do all the sacrifices that will be done in God's house. They are a person given, their name means given ones, to the service of the sanctuary and to the Levites. Rod Mattoon says, The Gibeonites were liars, they were deceivers, they were under the judgment and wrath of God. What was their hope? A covenant. That's no different than you and me. Our hope is in God's covenant. We are sinners and we go to a greater Joshua, Jesus Christ for our deliverance we are dependent upon his covenant of salvation by grace through faith in him Romans 5 20 says the law came in so that the transgression would increase but where sin increased grace abounded more and I tried to find the lyrics to this old song because all I can think of is the chorus I heard this as a little girl in church a couple sang it all the time but the chorus is where sin abounded grace abounded more my ransomed soul repeats it oer and oer though vile as i could be in sin he rescued me where sin abounded grace abounded more that's a wonderful song so kenneth matthew says because of their service to the lord at the tabernacle they were, they're able to live at the centerpiece of Israel's unity and worship. This is God's mercy and grace on this group. By grace, those initially outside the covenant have been brought near to God. This was true redemption for those who otherwise deserve to die. Just like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we...